Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Despite a sluggish global economy, China has navigated the various economic headwinds with a rather effective policy and has put the economy on solid footing to achieve its full-year growth targets. The International Monetary Fund recently raised its forecast for China's GDP growth this year from 5% in October to 5.4%. Meanwhile, a well-known Western ratings agency cast a negative outlook on China's credit ratings. So what's the true picture of China's economy in 2023? Will the country's 2023 growth targets be reached? And is China's economic growth still crucial for global economic recovery? Join us for today's special year-end discussion from Beijing. I'm Xu Qingdu. We're happy to be joined by David Mahong, Executive Chairman, Mahong China, and Professor Wang Yaojing, Assistant Professor in Economics at Peking University. Welcome to Dialogue. Use some keywords probably to describe China's economy in 2023. If you take 2020, 21, and last year, the accrued GDP growth is 20% in China. It's 7.7% in America and 3% in Europe. So there's a momentum that I think we also perhaps shouldn't take for granted. It's a grassroots momentum. It's even something which um, government policy can't do a great deal about. People are getting back to work. People are actually still investing in their businesses, their brands. So from a grassroots perspective, and, and I travel a lot in China each week, I see a lot of activity and I see a recovery of confidence commercially. But I still think there's some social insecurity in terms of People are still a bit wounded by what occurred in the last three years. But that will pass. I think by the spring of next year, we'll see um, much more solid growth and far better indicators in the key areas, even in the property sector. Mm -hmm. uh, what about this uh, year's, uh, you know, 2023, the growth targets? Uh, you know, uh, the Chinese government has set the target as around 5%. So do you think the, government, the country will reach its target? I think to reach 5% is, is very doable. Um, we thought three months ago it would have been shy of 5%, perhaps 4.7 or so, but mm -hmm. I think the, um, the growth is genuine and the government has done a lot. I mean, it's investing um, in infrastructure, not bridges to nowhere. It's like rebuilding hospitals in major cities or, or developing them further. It's going back to improve on existing infrastructure but this move to technology is very interesting. I mean, Xi Jinping's visit to Shanghai, I think was very significant. And the signal is that this is not going to replace property, but it is an engine in itself that in the medium term will be a very strong driver of growth in, in China. So I think when you have a socialist market economy as China does, you can do more things and you can push things further. So the government I think is doing some genuine um, stimulus. So I think China's going to eat a bit more bitterness um, and will come through this period reasonably well by the time we get into the spring and summer of next year. Professor Yao, you mentioned that we are seeing new drivers instead of relying on, say, property sector, export, you know, heavy investment. What are the sectors, what are the new sectors that are driving economic growth here? 
So let's talk about a few of the industries that China is leading in the world. Uh, first of all, is the renewable energy, right? Uh, we have, I think China is building 80% of the new energy buses around the world, and China is investing all over the world, uh, making those uh, batteries for, like Tesla is taking Chinese batteries now. So that is one. Um, and the other one is digital economy. So we're seeing a lot of the uh, big platforms in the world, the Chinese companies, and, and it's been viral, like TikTok has been viral to the world and shine. It's very popular in, in a lot of the countries. So uh, David, you know, we mentioned about this um, new energy industry uh, globally. You know, where is China now? And uh, what does it mean, you know, in terms of economy, in terms of, uh, say, the global efforts uh, in the battle against uh, uh, climate change. China's the first country to make solar panels viable, and not just viable technically, but the economic story around renewable energy in China is really interesting. In smaller countries, people still struggle to make the use of wind power and to apply it in a way that is industrially supportive. In China, we've gone beyond that. I also think that um, China's relative isolation technically while America has tried to block China's rise by using any means it can to prevent its technological evolution, it's forced China into a greater state of independence. And the innovation here is happening more swiftly than it would have otherwise. So we're living in a very interesting time where the very thing that uh, the US and its allies want to prevent China from becoming, it is becoming faster and depends less and less on the West. So this is a very interesting time for China for strategic and political reasons. It needs to be technically innovative. It needs to be more independent in energy. Um, and as a result, it becomes less of a market for those that currently are opposing China. So in the medium term, China's problems is going to, are going to make it stronger. So I'm really interested to see what that eventually will do in terms of exporting technology, as we are with um, electric vehicles, and developing battery technology that is now leading the world. So these things, um, the more China has resistance, the stronger it becomes. And the tech sector is one of the major case studies for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, Professor Yo, in a sense, you do see like uh, this uh, new energy industry globally is somehow uh, is more gravitating uh, toward China. Is that uh, where China is now? I think policy-wise, I, I really do like the policies that uh, it's very forward-looking. So what you see right now is actually the result of policies that's been 10 years ago that has been already formed. And we, we actually, if you remember, uh, a couple of years ago when there's a heavy subsidy into the electric vehicle industry and uh, some people accused that the, the subsidy to be too heavy and a lot of the uh, uh, Manufacturers, small manufacturers, just crowd in and, and just trying to take the subsidy. But um, after a while, you see the winners come out, and you see some of the really good companies, really good manufacturers, they come out. So they are selected from a very intense market, com uh, competitive market. So I would believe that if they survive the Chinese market, which is highly, highly competitive, they have an edge in the global market mm -hmm. and they will continue to do that. Yeah, uh, the overall economic uh, prospects, let's say, uh, you know, in particular from, say, internationally or the uh, Western perspective, there are, seems like a bit of mixed 
for example, first we mentioned about the IMF. They say Chinese economy is going to reach its target of 5.4% for 2023. And they also reaffirmed an October upward version of China's growth projection in 2024 from 4.2% to 4.6%. What do you make of this kind of like optimism uh, uh, debate here? I don't think we should concentrate too much on the GDP figure. China's a big country. It's, it is now arguably the biggest economy in the world. By purchasing power, parity it would be. So it's so big that its momentum can be measured in many ways. Um, I think the most important thing is to look at where China is competitive globally and the extent to which China attracts um, investment internationally um, and also where the West perceives China as an important market for their companies. These are the things that are, I think, more important measurements. And what interests me about the Chinese economy is that we're beginning to see, as in the electric vehicle sector, globally competitive companies like BYD. Um, and you've got a business model there that, yes, there was government support in the beginning, but these are truly independent private businesses. So China, I think, needs to look at why is America powerful? It has Cisco, it has Apple, it has um, Starbucks, it has Netflix, it has these dominant global players. So when China is really getting into a position of strength, it will have its own version of these things in its specific industries where domestically it's strong. I think for um, robotics, for AI, definitely within five years, China will be in a leading position in many ways. So rather than face what Huawei have faced, I mean, Huawei would be a dominant global company, but it was unjustly prevented, not because of security issues, just because you use politics to compete. And that's unfortunately what took place. So there's a stumbling block, but we'll get past that. So I think we'll begin to see emerging these global brands around new technology. And we're already seeing it in the vehicle sector. So it's almost like the, the torch ahead of us. The trouble is, I don't think the government policy, I don't think the banking system here is yet sophisticated or flexible enough to allow for these major private businesses to become strong and big enough. So there's some structural changes that need to be made. Of course, there are like seems to be different opinions. For example, you know, uh, the U.S. ratings agency Moody's they have uh, uh, casted uh, it provides an outlook on China's economy, uh, rather negative one uh, on December fifth. Uh, so, Professor Yao, what do you make of this different like uh, uh, estimation in terms of Chinese economy here? What they actually did in 2017 is that they downgraded China's uh, sovereign bond rating. And did that do anything to Chinese economy? I, I don't. I have not seen any. So this is what they do for I don't know for gesturing like their their, their political views or whatever. But the fact is that they are. It's like they are um, lowering someone's credit card limit, while someone does not borrow that on that credit card <laughs> because most of our sovereign bonds are internal. They're in R and B. And, and then their rating is more for uh, investors who are looking to buy this is the, uh, our sovereign bond, which is not really sold globally, not in the U.S. Uh, currency. Mm -hmm. So it is possibly misunderstanding um, or some kind of political issues that they they it would only hurt their own credibility rather mm -hmm. than the Chinese economy. Mm -hmm.
e economic performance. You know, besides these domestic factors, you know, uh, one is um, I would say people won't ignore that is um, the politics. You know, uh, let's say China-U.S. relationship or the U.S. pressure on the Chinese side. Long Yun Tu, uh, Mr. Long is um, the chief negotiator for China's uh, admission to the WTO uh, many years ago. He had an interview saying that, uh, you know, basically, like uh, the two countries should cooperate. Let's take a, a listen here. A few months ago, I spoke to some foreign business leaders, basically from the United States. I told them, if you treat us like this 20 or 30 years ago, we are finished. But now it's too late for you to do that, because during last two or three decades, China's size of economy grew so fast. So the size of the economy, the size of the population, the size of the middle class group, the size of a Chinese manufacturer, which is bigger than those of the United States, Germany, Japan, Korea get together. Oh, we have such a big size of manufacturing, taking 30%, over 30% of the, the whole size of the world uh, manufacturing sectors. And uh, also through the globalization, China's economy, through the supply chain and the manufacturing chain has been deeply integrated with one another. It's not easily the cut off of this uh, manufacturing and supply chain. Uh, so. The size of the Chinese economy has decided that you cannot easily get away from China. You cannot. And also, we hope to tell the United States that if you cannot beat us to death, if you cannot throw out easily, it better consider whether it's good for you to cooperate with us. I think that would be better for them. It is their basic interest. We hope they change their mind. Mr. Long said uh, that, you know, um, U.S. will not be able to beat China. And uh, the wise way for Washington is to cooperate with China. Uh, do you agree, David? I think he's right. I mean, look at the last um, 40 years. It has been the American-China collaboration that's made the whole world wealthier, more stable, lifted more people out of poverty than any time in history, not just in China, but across the world. So he's right. I think we're looking at a, a, a tide of history where the West is beginning to decline and the West, therefore, is becoming insecure about its own decline. And they're looking for somewhere to blame and they see China's development. So they'd rather point to China's development as a cause for their own internal decline and lay on sanctions and bring up all these geopolitical tensions, which is what America is doing a lot in Asia, which is really not about China at all, or about any real conflict. It's about the insecurity of Europe and America facing this phase, this period of decline. And all empires fail. All countries become strong, and then they become weak again. And the trouble with our lot in the West, we're struggling with that. We don't want to accept it. We can't adapt to the fact we're losing power. And so we're worried about the emergence of China. But it's a misreading of China's emergence because China is not the replacement empire. China is just becoming strong and it's 20% of the world's population. So I think gradually European countries and other countries around the world will realize 
that the best thing is to cooperate with China. China will need to be flexible, patient, not react, and just have confidence in its own evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Professor Yo, you know, uh, just as Mr. Long and David has mentioned about uh, you know, the best way in terms of their own interests and also the interests of the world is for Washington and Beijing to cooperate with each other instead of uh, pursuing the so-called decoupling policy, you know, separating, uh, cutting off relationship between the two countries. I think what they call decoupling or, or de-risking is the same thing. It's just that the decoupling sounds too too harsh and then they, okay. they, they used a different word and, and make it look better but it's not actually not so uh so this de-risking or decoupling thing is I, I i see more like a political campaign to make a gesture to 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 their voters or whoever but uh but really is that if you think about what businesses and, and what people want is to cooperate it's only by cooperating and, and, and coordinating with china working with China, could the, the Western, whether it's US or European businesses and the people would benefit from that. So it's at the end of the day, politicians, they, they really do care about just their own political views or political goals instead of what the businesses and, and the people want. Um, they can do, they can call, I mean, they can talk about decoupling and de-risking all the time, but if they do care about what the businesses and the people's benefits, they should be cooperating. Mm. Uh, well, I also talked to uh, Yu Kang Huang, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment mm. for International Peace. Um, in the interview, he um, points out an interesting story, basically. Let's, uh, let's take a listen first. China's growth of 7 8%, over the last decade and a half increased global growth by a full one to two percentage points a year, especially for developing countries. So that's been a very positive effect. It also actually uplifted the growth rate of Europe. People don't actually recognize that, but it did. So a shrinking or a slow growth in China is bad for China, but bad for the world. And there have been some simulations about the consequences of the technology war, the trade war. This potentially continues, more restrictions, more tariffs, it could slow down China's annual growth rate, let's say, a full percentage point. And you begin to feel that, actually, it was going on in China. But many people in the West don't realize that there's also a negative impact upon U.S. and European companies. If U.S. European companies cannot and will not export high-tech products to China, then these companies don't have the revenues to support the research and development. Innovation in the West slows down. So there have been some studies which have shown that in a technology world, a, a policy of de-risking will also lower growth rates in the West by as much as 1% a year, let's say five to 10 years down the line. Now, if you think about it, the West considers a steady growth of around 2% or 2.5% as, as a good solid achievement on an annual basis. But if that growth rate is cut by a full percentage point and growth in Europe and the United States is only 1%, not 2%, that actually has some very serious consequences for the US. So a de-risking strategy has negative uh, implications for China, I would say in, in the near term, but in the medium term, it has serious negative implications for the West. No one comes out of this better. So David, where are we now uh, in the pursuit of decoupling or de-risking you know, from Washington, from Brussels? It's all very well in Brussels and Washington to talk about decoupling. This is a political discussion. But the history of the American economy is not that they obey some ideology. 
they trade. I mean, American companies are global thinkers. They're, they have dominance in so many sectors because they will go where the returns are. And going forward, China will be the economy where the returns are. So people will come and invest here. Um, is decoupling a reality? Look at the American companies in China. Are they leaving? They're not leaving. They're actually expanding here. So I don't think it's um, a real thing. I think it's a political wish. I think it's something for politicians to focus on, to give the appearance of action in a situation where the world is struggling, particularly the Western world. So I have every confidence that whether it's European companies or American companies, they will come and do business here because this is, the, this is where the consumers are and these are where the returns are. So I'm not too concerned about rhetoric on decoupling. Mm -hmm. And Yu Hong Huang has made interesting um, comments in the last 12 months. And I think, by the way, he's one of the most accurate assessors of China. He's a contrarian in many ways, and he's largely right. And he's talked about if America and Europe really concentrate on this blocking of technology, it could cost China a, even 1% of GDP growth. And that is serious, but um, that would be temporary. It might last for three, four, even five years. But China will still grow. And what's happening within that is that, okay, those things that China's not getting from the West, um, the investments that aren't coming, the businesses that can't bring their technology to China, China then becomes more and more independent. So in the end, those businesses lose a great deal. So it won't last, but at the top end, microchips, um, high-speed computers, these areas, or anything related to defense, America will be quite stubborn in that, in that field. And that will have an impact, but not so much that it will prevent China's growth. It'll just shave a bit off its um, annual GDP um, development. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the China market, uh, of course, Professor Yo, there are challenges, obviously, in the real estate sector. We are talking about the, you know, the somewhat lukewarm confidence in the private sector, investment, consumption here. Uh, the government has taken some measures, um, but you know, how effective are these measures and uh, where are we are now and what we are expecting? Let's take the real estate market, for example. So I think the central government released policy on uh, boosting the demand for its, um, say, supply chain. So the government is providing a lot of the housing uh, for the essential housing needs. So I think the, the demand side, the government is trying to do that. And for the supply side, they will have to um, restructure a lot of the debt from the real estate companies. And they will have to work together with the gov local government, with the banks, and, and, and to, to, to make sure that no systematic risks would happen. So that's a property market. But we will have to wait um, for some time to see mm -hmm. the results. But uh, a, a stable re uh, property market is probably what we are working towards uh, for the next year. For the next year. And also, of course, in December, we have this uh, Central Economic Conference, which mm -hmm. is an uh, important one. Uh, usually it sets basically the tone of economic policymaking for the next year. Uh, so what's the signal, David? You know what? You know, People say it seems like there is a refocus of a single focus on the economic growth mm. for 2024. Probably we are going to see more policies to support uh, economic growth here. I hope we see um, policies that encourage the private sector. I hope we see initiatives that allow for a, the creation of, of a more stable private banking sector because the state controls the banking system. Mm -hmm which is why we don't have recessions, which is why we don't have crises. So it's a good thing. 
but it doesn't help growth in the way we now need. There's two sides. It's got two sides. <laughs> so we need a, a much more efficient and more flexible private banking system. And in the absence of it, we end up with these shadow banking structures and these informal structures, which are inherently very inst unstable. So I hope to hear initiatives that the private sector can get um, better credit policies out of a non-state banking um, system. That would be a major move. If that came as a message, that would also encourage foreign investors. It would encourage people who are looking at China's capital markets. So I think the messages can be very simple. I'm not sure if the government's ready yet. Mm. I think they're still struggling with trying to see how they manage all these problems at once. Yeah. And how they balance the fact that the property crisis is in the third and fourth tier cities. They were the ones that overbuilt. Mm. They speculated. They converted land into projects because um, they needed the income. Whereas the major cities, the 11 coastal provinces and the major cities of China, that property sector's fine. That'll be fine by next year. The demand will come back. People want to live in these places. So we're getting a sort of hangover of an overemphasis in the property sector. We need to go through this. Mm -hmm. And once we come out of it, property won't be such a strong driver of the Chinese economy, but it will be a healthy sector. And it will come back as a um, bringing demand for all the things, whether it's construction materials or appliances, all the things that um, property is the catalyst for in an economy. So we'll get through this. Um, but I think we have to be careful we don't over-focus on what's happening to property. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of, partly a sickness we have to allow the economy to go through. Let's look, as you were mentioning earlier, focus on the tech sector, focus on the newer areas of the Chinese economy, which are the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Yojin. Thank you, David. With that, we come to the end of today's special discussion on Chinese economy. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. With a history of 5,000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. Will, will you marry me? He asked. And with little hesitation, she said, <laughs> Yes! 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. My father must not go to war. Someone must take his place. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3, wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.